Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Our guest on today's episode is Ruth Ozeki, a booker shortlisted author who we've been meaning to have on the show for about six months, I think. But uh, moving schedules and tours and everything else meant that we've only just managed to get all our timetables to line up. So we are delighted to have her on the show this week. Before we get to that, a reminder that you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles to get extended episodes each and every week and lots of other exclusive goodies coming up soon as well, including a new series of An Uncanny Hour. We should have new episodes of Tips for Existence coming up soon and a special fireside gig film with Robin from his 100 Bookshops tour. That's coming up very soon as well. So if you don't already subscribe, head to that URL and you can sign up. And if you do already support us, thank you very much. Uh, Not only do you get the exclusive uh, stuff, but your subscription each and every week is what means we can keep making book shambles and all the stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles at all. All the podcasts and the blogs and, and the charity shows and everything else is made possible by your generous support. So thank you very much. Speaking of charity shows, Nine Lessons for Spring is coming up on Easter weekend in April. These are the rescheduled dates from December that we had to postpone due to COVID. If you had tickets for any of the postponed dates, they are valid for the new dates, or you can buy tickets at the King's Place website. We announced some of the guests joining Robin for those shows this week, including Lucy Green, Helen Chersky, Matt Parker, Bobby Seagull, Neera Chamberlain, Deborah Francis White, Natalie Haynes, Jim Bob, Miranda Lowe, and plenty of others. CosmicShambles.com slash nine lessons is where all the information about that is. Now on to this week's conversation. Here is Robin and Ruth. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, yet again, Josie is not here. Uh, as you know, uh, her alibi of maternity leave is more than fully acceptable, but uh, I look forward to her, uh, having her back. Uh, it's, it's such a, a very long time. And uh, I've g- given a little bit of a warning for the listeners and also for our guest, Ruth, today, which is I've drunk a lot of coffee today, and I've also finished the first draft of my next book. So I'm in this kind of weird, jittery, is it elation? is it coffee and then also at the same time any moment realizing I have to turn a corner and start editing out at least 40,000 words so I'm both elated and filled with a, a sense of doom so please listeners put that in your mind as to the uh, ever-changing uh, the quantum state of, uh, of of my psychology and consciousness today but I'm very pleased to have someone who uh, it's been ages in fact we I, I think we first started talking uh, about having Ruth on on the show about six months ago and of course as someone who who uh, had a book out. I think it came out in the UK in October, as far as I remember. Uh, there were many uh, possibilities that were going to happen in terms of festivals and all of those things which have disappeared, but it's, uh, we're going to talk about an absolutely fascinating book, uh, which is called uh, The Book of Form and Emptiness, uh, and it is by Ruth Ezeki. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Robin. It's wonderful to finally be here. 
<laughs> I, there's there's so much to talk about in 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 this book, but uh, we will, t- I presume, talk quite a lot about the nature of reality, the voices in 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 our heads, and and how they can manifest themselves. But we should probably start with jazz and libraries. Oh uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now jazz plays a part in, and I'm not gonna. I don't want to give away too much of, of anything really to to the listeners about the book. You should just go out and get it, and uh, you will find out it is literally every single bookshop that I toured in the autumn. I went to 110 bookshops, and all of them had your book out front and center. You'll be glad to know. Nice. Um, but yeah, so it starts off. We have we have the life of a jazz musician in 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 the early part of it, and and what is your relationship to to? Did you make uh, him a jazz musician because this was very much part of your life, and you're thinking I'll just put the clubs in here, or was this something that grew during the writing? Well, you know, I, I've always loved Benny Goodman, um, and you know, and I've always. I've always wanted to play the clarinet and, and you know, I, that never happened. I played the flute instead. I don't know why. I, I don't know why I didn't take up clarinet, but um, it's such a beautiful instrument. And, and I think, you know, because of that, I, I just sort of learned about Benny Goodman's music and I started to listen to it. And, uh, you know, I, I there was just something about the, you know, the swing era that, you know, was so um, cheerful, you know. And um, I think these past couple of years have been anything but cheerful. And so um, it was interesting music. And, and I got particularly hooked on that, um, that one Carnegie Hall concert um, and, you know, got the recording of that and started listening to it over and over again. And, and then it just like anything that I'm interested in, anything that I become a little bit obsessed about um, find, ends up finding its way into my books. And I think that's why my books are, you know, I mean, talk about shambles, you know, it, it, they, they tend to be, you know, sort of filled with all sorts of stuff. And it's, it's because of my own kind of magpie, magpie brain. Um, so that's how, that's how Benny Goodman found his way into the, into the book. And also, do, do you find yourself as, as an author, because I was talking about, I can't remember which author I was talking about this with the other day, it wasn't on this, it was just a general conversation in a bar, but about the fact that the joy of writing is there are things that you do not believe you could actually physically achieve. But for a while when you're writing, you are a jazz clarinetist. So though you haven't had to take all the lessons, but nevertheless, you've just done an incredible solo in a club and everyone stood up there, that, that, that becomes, you, you have that experience. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I've always thought of novel writing as wishful thinking, you know, it's all of the things that I, you know, wish I could do, wish I had done, wish I had done better, um, things I wish I hadn't done, you know, all of these, all of these things end up in the book. And the one other thing before we really get into into, into kind of deeper parts of it is because libraries play a part in this book as well. What what kind of part has libraries played in, in, in your life as, as a reader? Oh, my goodness. I mean... You know, I grew up at a time when, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make generalizations like this. Let me just say this, that when I was a child, my mother and I didn't really play together. She wasn't the kind of woman who played with her child, you know. But the one thing that she did do and loved to do was to take me to the library. And, um, and she would, uh, you know, put me down in the basement, which is where the children's, you know, book section was, and and just kind of leave me there, um, you know, in charge of the, uh, or, you know, in, in the charge of the librarians. And I just thought this was the most wonderful thing in the world. You know, this, this to my, you know, childhood, um, you know, eyes, this, this very, very large room filled with books with these very kind ladies um, who 
owned all of the books and who would just give them to me, you know, and I, I couldn't think of anything, anything better. And, and so I would spend certainly during, you know, um, uh, summer vacation um, when school wasn't in session, I would spend my summers at the, at the public library and, and be happy there for hours and hours and hours. And I um, really thought for the longest time that I would become a librarian. I mean, that was kind of my, you know, that was my dream. Um, and I always ended up sort of migrating back to libraries. And so um, when I was in college, for example, I had a, I had a job um, putting, and this was you know, quite a long time ago, um, putting these little magnetic strips into the spines of the books. And these were sort of little anti-theft devices, right? Um, I'm I know the technology has changed a lot since then. Um, and for some reason, the, the school, the university um, hired English majors to do this, which was such a mistake, you know, because we were so slow. Um, we, we had these carts and, and we would, you know, I, we would push the carts up and down the, the stacks and take each book from the shelf and slip the, you know, the little magnetic slip into the, into the spine. And, and of course, you know, once you've taken a book off the shelf, you can't, you know, help but to open it. And once you've opened it, you can't help but to read it. And I remember that summer I had a, I had a thick notebook that I carried with me. And there was just something about the, um, you know, the serendipity, the, the physical act of walking down the stacks and taking each book from the shelf and watching the way the books kind of interacted with each other. It was this sense of, of serendipity, you know, the, 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 um, the kind of random, almost random connection between ideas and light words and, you know, they, they'd kind of collide, you know, and, um, and just sort of enjoying that and, and looking at the way that these random collisions um, sort of generated new stories. And I think that was the, that was really the summer when I realized that stories really are about the collision of ideas. It's, it's when two ideas kind of bump together, um, a third thing is born, you know, and, um, and, and I've written that way ever since that that's how I write my novels. And very often what I try to do when I'm writing, I'm sorry, this is such a long answer. Um, what I what I'm doing when I'm writing is inviting randomness into the process. So I try not to control too much. And I try to let the world you know, in somehow, and I have all sorts of tricks and ways of doing that. Um, but it it all it all started with libraries. Yeah, library. I, I love the fact with libraries, which is books that have secondhand books that have been uh, library books are always worth less money, and which is a joy for me because I love them. I, I have, uh, you know, in fact, what, what have I got here? I talked about talk about this one yesterday. This very bizarre book called Dreams About Her Majesty the Queen, which I picked up, which is, is, you know, that's exactly what it is. And the fact that you can see how often it's been taken out. Like I have, I've got a John Cage book that was only ever taken out once. And I kind of like the idea that perhaps John Cage himself would like the silence that the book received. You know, that's part of his. But I, And then other books where you go, wow, like I've got an Ursula K. Le Guin, her, her, the Earthsea trilogy library book man the stamps on that from the moment it came in it's bang bang but and I just I love that sense of you know talking of collisions when you start to have that sense of colliding with all the other readers that have been inside that book that have you know what have they been taking out on the 12th of November 1977 or the 4th of June 1982 
it's just it's it's mind boggling. And when you think about all of the places those you know that one book has been, and all of the hands that you know that it's passed through, and all of the ways that all of the minds that it's intersected with, and the lives that it's changed. I mean that that's a that's that book that one object becomes you know a kind of repository of of this wonderful history and and that excites me that's what excites me about things you know things things have these hidden histories and and you know we can't know them the the object the thing knows it but we can't um except for little bits of you know the sort of the palimpsest of of you know what's left behind you know um this, the library stamps for example or the coffee stain on you know page 33 or you know the dog-eared you know, page that that the fifth reader, you know, um, turned down, you know, all of that is just so interesting to me. I, I think I'm, you know, I, my my dad was an anthropologist, so I can understand, you know, I always think of myself as being half Japanese and half anthropologist. And that I think that's what's coming out there. And I know you have said that, you know, writing books is is like pulling teeth. In fact, I'm glad, that, which worries me, because if you had been a dentist, my God, that would have been a really long extraction because you, I, I, I think, you know, Book of Form of Emptiness, you said eight years? Uh, roughly so so is that because as those things collide sometimes you're throwing and eventually you discover that whatever came out whatever noise came away from that collision you go mm, oh actually those hundred pages are gone you know at the at the starting point do you start writing without necessarily knowing where it's going or are the collisions the post-it notes on the wall that mean that when you actually start sitting down to create the, the you now do know at least some of the journey I know some of the journey. Um, usually I, before I start writing, I've been thinking about, you know, usually it's a character who comes to me or, you know, some kind of idea like, yeah, uh, usually it's a character and, um, and the character, you know, sort of, yeah, what, you know, sort of comes and, and colonizes my mind, my imagination and um, kind of moves in. Um, and then, you know, I sit with the character for a little bit and then, you know, and then start, start thinking about start realizing start you know um what imagining what's going to happen to the to the character and so um you know but i guess the i you know i certainly don't um do any kind of uh real outlining i i make maps as i go um so as i'm writing i'll make a map of the territory that i've already traversed um and then maybe i'll you know speculate i'll, I'll you know sort of uh, speculate what might happens, you know, what might happen next. Um, but it's, it's not, um, somebody said this, and I can't remember who, um, I have a terrible memory. But you know, that that it's like, um, when you're driving in the dark, and you have headlights on. And, you know, so I can see only as far as the headlights reach. Um, but then everything after that is is dark. And so the you know, so you don't really know where you're going, but you are trying to stay on the road. Um, and, you know, and that's kind of what it feels like. Although usually at some point in the process, I will have a sense of an ending. Um, you know, that was a Julian Barnes book, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. You're allowed to use the same words that Julian Barnes. We would, oh, good. If we, I, I don't even in think he came up with sense of an ending. I think other people <laughs> came up with it. If he sues over that, I feel he's being, yeah, overly litigious. All right. Um, so there is this kind of, you know, a sense of a destination there. Um, but that doesn't come until later, usually, for me. Do you sometimes, when you've, when you've 
finally finished it when there's no way of going back i mean do you feel that there's that you know do you feel that you've finished a novel or do you have that normal thing which is going i have to stop writing now or do you actually get a sense of i finish i finish yeah i i know when it's done um it's very clear to me you know obviously by the time i've reached you know by the time i've reached the end i know where i'm going right and Mm. and so um at that point, uh, you know, when I have written the final page, the final paragraph, the final sentence, the final word, I know it. I'm very clear about that. Um, and it's a, you know, it, it's a heady experience. It, it's a pretty euphoric experience. Um, you know, that's kind of before I go back and reread it and discover that, in fact, there's so much wrong with it and it really needs the 40,000 words that need to, you know, to come out. Um, but there is, a, you know, there is a brief moment of, of real um, euphoria at the end. How often, I mean, do you find, because spending eight years with a book, mm-hmm. do you sometimes find when you've, when you've got to that final word and you go back, you go, oh, hang on a minute, I've just realised that this person grew so much in my imagination that I have to rewrite these first three yes. chapters because this is no longer the person that, that that was a different human being. Absolutely. I mean, that to me is is largely what rewriting, you know, is. And, um, and too, I have to say that I, you know, I tend to do a lot of that work as I'm moving along. So, you know, at, you know, you start writing at page one and then, you know, then at page 60, you realize that the character has done something that's going to have to change what happened on page one. And so usually I go back at at that point and make the, make the adjustments, at least in a kind of loose way. And then I sort of, it's almost like combing that, you know, combing that thread through the pages until I catch up with myself again on page 60 and then proceed Right. And, and then on page, you know, 120, something else happens and I have to do the same process. So, you know, I tend to kind of, you know, very often spy, you know, spiral back and pull these threads through um, so that <clears throat> usually by the end, um, it's pretty much in place. Um, most of the big changes, uh, you know, kind of updating of the character has been done already. Um, but then it's usually that I have too much um, or that something tonally has to change. Um, you know, very often I'll finish a draft and I'll, um, you know, I'll give it to my dear readers and um, my first readers. Um, and, and they'll be like, yeah, you know, that character, I'm just not quite getting it. I'm not quite understanding what her motivation is. I don't understand why the, the tone is so you know, there's something a little bit dismissive. Maybe it's a problem of irony. The irony is too heavy handed. Um, and then I'll have to go back and, and you know, adjust that um, and find a different, it's almost like a different attitude um, to have towards the character. And usually what that means is I have to, I have to work in order to, um, to understand the character better, um, you know, to, you know, to, to find some deeper empathy with the character, even if it's a villain, especially if it's a villain, you know, find some, find the kind of the, the deeper, darker parts of the psychology of the character that I haven't explored fully yet. You were saying when, about when you're kind of listening to the thoughts in your head and about and because, you know, this is a, a book about those internal voices and where they can appear to come from in in terms of your actual process i mean i, I know that pat barker who wrote the ghost road and and, mm, and, and mm, many mm. other books that that she said that 
she actually she basically the characters walk into her head and she does not feel part of it it's like i, I know that she's helped out sometimes with dealing with people who've had intrusive voices that they cannot deal with sometimes hearing from from creative people who who use their uh into her voices possibly i know that she's been very useful for that but she says you know she'll just be sitting there and she kind of just waits and then they walk in and yes. then they start a conversation and she observes that conversation that's exactly that's that's exactly how I experience it too. It's it's just that sometimes I think the problems are when um, when my own psychology kind of um, gets in the way. My own my own uh, what you know. Sometimes I have as, as the writer you know I'll have this idea of you know like oh the character should do this next or the character you know and and that's always a mistake you know it, the 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 trick i've found found is is to try to um you know to really take an observational stance towards the characters and let them now i mean i'm again i'm being fanciful here because obviously you know I, well maybe it's not obvious but i am doing the writing Right. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like there's, you know, gods, you know, in, you know, in on Olympus, you know, sort of using me as a as a vehicle for their thoughts. No, I mean, that that's probably not what's happening, although I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. Um, but when I start to have a, you know, a, a kind of a smart idea about, oh, you know, why don't why doesn't the character do this? Um, I think that in a way is an indication that I've become impatient somehow, right? That I'm trying to, you know, intrude, um, you know, sort of impose my own narrative will on the characters. And, um, and that's usually when I think I probably get a little bit lazy too, you know, I get impatient. Um, and those are generally the areas where I need to go back and step step away from you know whatever idea i had um and uh do you know allow the character to really come forth in a more um you know a more sort of complex and um a deeper way if that makes sense i feel a little uh, have you ever read julian james's book about the bicameral mind oh no i haven't but i you know i i know something about it yeah i have not read it though because I find that very interesting. Thing. You know, I thought about it a few times when I was when I was reading your novel about, you know, that that his idea uh, that there was a period of time where we didn't know our inner voice was our inner voice, and I think that's a really and and that that's seems right. to explain a, a you know whether that is true or false. As we know, there are people whose inner voice becomes detached from their sense of self, and it does become to them an outer voice. And I think that's a really interesting that idea. There was a point where we we heard a voice, and when we heard our thoughts, we thought it was God or some other outside agency. Yeah, yeah. and and I think that's what. I you know, I experience as a novelist, it's just that I have a container to put that in, you know, cult, you know, our culture um, has created this container called the novel, right? And so when I hear an inner voice, which is exactly how I experience my characters coming to me, they start to talk to me. Now it's an internal talking, it's not split out from myself, it's not like I'm hearing it as though with my ear, as though that voice is on the outside of me. Um, although I have had that experience. When my dad died, I used to hear his voice talking to me. And it was very much an experience of, you know, I'm hearing his voice with my ear and he's standing behind me slightly to the right. So, you know, I understand what that experience is like, but that's not what happens when I'm, when I'm writing. Um, when I'm writing, I hear the voice and it's like I'm hearing it with my mind inside inside me um and uh you know and so then it's my job to you know 
you know, to, to record that and to put it onto paper because I am this thing called a novelist and we have this, you know, container called a novel. And if I do this, then, uh, you know, people will be able to read it and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I can equally well imagine a culture, you know, and I'm lucky because in our culture, you know, novelists and musicians and artists and, you know, we're not automatically locked up you know, there's a, there's a place for us in, in the culture. Um, and in fact, you know, um, we have a nice word for that, you know, the, the word inspiration, you know, is a, is a beautiful word to describe those kinds of, you know, the voices that you hear in your mind or music or art, you know, visions that you have. Um, but I can equally well imagine a culture where, um, where that would be pathologized. Um, in fact, it could be criminal, right? And people like us, um, you know, would be locked up. Um, so I'm just glad. I feel very grateful that you know that this thing called a novel, you know, exists, and that I can somehow fit into the you know into the role of novelist. I feel very lucky about that. Yeah, I think I, I think sometimes some of the things that I do on stage, and it would be lunacy if I was not if there wasn't an audience <laughs> in front of me. Would and it's uh, but that, I mean that seems to be one of the reasons that sometimes I mean certainly I often think about it in the Eng English culture because I think English culture to me has uh, a, a, a really big disparity between who you are uh, on the outside and who you are on the inside and I think mm -hmm. that's where a lot of our problems come from uh, and and I think actually in a lot of English language culture as well I sometimes see it you know really laid out there and and that seems to me to be the importance of art which is if you have a culture or one of the, so when I say the importance, that's ridiculous because that would be. But you know, one of the things yeah. is when your culture has this disparity between the inside and the and and the projection itself, you do need people like you and you know great writers and great artists to say it's okay. As you said, that safe space that says, "Come on in, I'm going to show you it's okay." These things that we so often don't bring up when we're in polite society or with you know the people that we want to impress or whatever that that secret self and certainly I, th I thought you know there's so much of that uh in 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 the book of form and, and emptiness yeah yeah I, I think that's I think that's absolutely right um it, that made me uh think and in fact what we were talking about before also I started thinking about um you know this idea of the fictional dream you know and you know and consciousness I mean you know it, it's it's we have these vivid, vivid dreams. You don't have to be an artist or a, you know, a musician or a writer to, um, to have them. We all have them, right? We all have these, these, uh, you know, the, these, you know, very real feeling dreams. And, and so, you know, when people ask about, you know, where do your ideas come from? Well, where do your dreams come from? You know, it, it's, there is there, I think these, you know, these, um, you know, the, these phenomena come from, a very, very deep part of what we call the unconscious, you know. And um, again, we have a word for that. That's nice, you know. We have a con we have a concept for that because otherwise, you know, it, why not think of it as as God or as you know um, something else on the outside, you know. And and uh, you know, when when in writing, certainly um, one thing that I'm always aware of, and this is something that you know John Gardner, the novelist and and you know brilliant writing teacher, um, used to talk about. The fictional dream and how, you know, the the uh, the really important thing for the writer is to not disrupt that fictional dream. In other words, to invite the reader into the fictional world, right, into the dream world, um, and then not don't blow it. 
you know, once you've got them in, don't do anything to knock them out of it, right? And and that's always been interesting to me because to some extent, I agree with that, but I prefer to, um, to, you know, to disrupt it a little bit. And this is, I think, where, you know, metafiction comes in. Um, but then, you know, I mean, Shakespeare did that too, breaking the fourth wall. It's, it's a way of, you know, it, it's a way of having the fictional dream kind of, you know, leak out and make these, you know, sort of, what, sort of interfere with reality as we think we know it. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, sort of working in that liminal space between the fictional dream and then reality as we perceive it to be, um, you know, outside of the fictional dream, that's interesting to me. Um, and I don't know why I launched into that, but something you said made me think. That. I never know either. Yeah. I was doing a book talk yeah. last night and it's, I always feel so sorry for the person who interviews me because, yeah. I, you know, that bit where after about 15 minutes you go, what was your question? Well, that's what I love as well. I'm much more interested. I love watching watching your and, and you know watching your mind at work. And to me, all of it makes total sense because it doesn't. Good. You know that, that idea where there's such solidity to every answer, where you go, oh, that's exactly. You know, you you almost think I could have probably guessed that answer, whereas I couldn't have guessed your answer that you just gave. You know, and so you t- and that's what I love. You know, when you talk about uh, also the importance of books and you know the, the kind of containers that they are, because I've also thought that this idea that they are a fossil of the mind. That the fact that, you know, when I'm dead, when you're dead, when, you know, I'm sure we've all got books around us now of people who are long dead and yet we have the process of some of their thoughts. We don't have all of them, but we have the actual activity of their mind. And you think at the moment, as far as we know, well, we know there's no other species, at least on this planet, that leaves behind a little bit of a record of what all of those collisions that it it had in its mind. When did you get interested in... um, in dealing with someone who is, as, as you say, they are hearing uh, non-human persons, where they, you know the, 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 this, you know the, the, the character Benny, who, who is I, I, again, I didn't want to give away too much, but you know the, the, the fact that, that Benny is basically listening from things that he, he hears the voices of, of, of clothes, he hears the voice of his father's clothes, he hears these these. Um, what was the start of that um, fascination? Well, I think part of it was this idea that things have histories, you know, things have stories in them. Um, and, and so I was, you know, I was thinking very much about that um, when, particularly when I was cleaning out my parents' house after they had died. Um, and my parents were, you know, depression era people. They were both born in 1914. So they lived through the Great Depression and they, they saved things, you know, they saved, <laughs> they saved everything, um, you know, every piece of, 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 you know, plastic wrap or, or, you know, aluminum foil, they would, they would wash and save and fold up and, and, you know, reuse it. Um, so they weren't hoarders, but they were just very frugal and very careful, right? Um, and so, you know, it, it fell to me, I'm an only child, it fell to me to, to, to clean out the house. And I just, you know, started uncovering all of this stuff that I, and I just didn't know where a lot of it had, had come from. Um, you know, some of the stuff I did know, it, it, some of it came from my Japanese grandparents um, and from the Japanese side of my family, um, which goes, you know, way back. Um, and, you know, these were things that growing up in Connecticut were very exotic and and I used to play with them, you know, just things like Buddhist prayer beads and, and um, you know, these beautiful woodblock prints that my grandfather had and, and he was a photographer too, so all of his photographs. Um, I remember in particular there was this um, th- there was this box of, uh, of of stones, rocks 
that um, he had he had collected and then sliced and polished and then mounted to pieces of cardboard and they were desert rocks you know and i just thought these this was you know a, a, a tr absolute treasure you know i thought they were you know worth millions of dollars and that i was the richest person in the world because i had this box of rocks um and then much later i learned that um that these were rocks that uh he had collected in the new mexico desert um when he was interned in a justice department um prisoner of war camp um you know during world war ii and i think probably that the the camp um these camps were you know uh, there was it was a kind of, it was a form of indentured servitude as well right i mean they the prisoners were put to work um and i i suspect that there was a you know a, a kind of rock cutting you know assembly line in the camp where the prisoners were um you know cutting and polishing these stones to be sold in the tourist trade right um and so he had he had um saved some of these and and this was the you know this was the the box that i inherited and i remember thinking you know wow I happen to know about this one box, but all of these other things in the house have stories that are probably just as interesting. And, you know, if only they could speak, if only they could talk to me and tell me, you know, what their story is, you know, I would be, I would be happy. And I just remember wishing that. Um, and, and so I think I've always had this, um, you know, the, this feeling that, uh, you know, that, that objects are rich with history and, um, you know, what if, you know, it goes back to that wishful thinking thing again, you know, what if I could hear them? And I think that's what I've given Benny in a way is this ability to hear, um, you know, and he doesn't know how to use this power at first. Um, you know, it's, it's, he, of course, it's immediately when, when his teachers and, um, you know, doctors find out about this, it's pathologized and he's, you know, he's medicated and, you know, um, that's part of the story. But, um, but he, and at first he doesn't really know how to use this power. And so of course it, it uh, you know, it's not until he meets an artist and a, a poet that he starts to understand that maybe this isn't entirely a bad thing, you know, um, maybe there's, there's elements to this that are in fact really wonderful. So he learns to, you know, sort of deal with his voices, um, uh, you know, uh, in a more kind of holistic way. Such interesting, isn't it? Yeah, if, we, if we all spoke out aloud the things were in our mind, how many of us would be considered to be insane by whatever the latest copy of, you know, the manual for <laughs> diagnostic blah, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, it's yeah. in, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed. I, I think that object's such a fascinating thing about the, the, those stones as well, because I, it mm. immediately made me think of Viktor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*. Oh, I love that book. It's yeah. so it's 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 a yearly read, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that I, bit I, of purpose, that bit of you know, looking at those stones, that bit when you're going through this this servitude, mm. and you know, when 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 Viktor Frankl talks about the fact that you would you would often know when someone was going to die because you could see that they had lost all sense of meaning all sense of a future all sense of a future purpose and once the sense of any future purpose had gone you would that was it that's right that's right yeah 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 no i, I it, it it's an it's an amazing book i i and i do try to revisit it um frequently but i think that you know that it always makes me think about and and feel very grateful for the fact that, again, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to um, live in conditions where, 
my own, you know, search for meaning, my own, um, you know, creativity have, you know, this has been encouraged, right? Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I think this is why I write, you know, it, it's, it's because there is some kind of question, there's some, something I don't understand. And, you know, the, the book is in, uh, you know, it is a way of giving shape to that question and giving an excuse, you know, to spend eight years thinking about something. Um, so in this case, you, you know, uh, to, to circle back to what you um, originally uh, talked about, you know, it's this idea of um, insentient beings, right, speaking. And, um, you know, this is a, this is a, a very, very ancient, um, you know, Japanese or not Japanese, Chinese, actually, Zen uh, koan, um, this idea of uh, the question, do insentient beings speak the Dharma? Right. Um, in other words, can insentient beings be our teachers? Right. Can they teach us something? Um, can they speak to us? Can we can we learn to hear them? And, <clears throat> you know, uh, this, I think, is a you know, is a this question has never been more important um, than it is now, because, of course, you know, we're in the process of, of um, silencing so many of the insentient beings, you know, who have cohabited on the planet with us. And and it's exactly, you know, unless we do learn to you know, attend to um, what they have to teach us, you know, we're not going to survive. So, you know, th this, this question of, you know, do insentient beings speak the Dharma? Do they teach us? Do they, you know, do they teach us about the reality that we live in? Um, this was the question that I, you know, that I wanted to sort of ponder over these eight years. It also, it seems such an important, I mean, before we even get to the insentient beings, that that uh, a, a book like yours and and a lot of my favourite novels, that that when you start to realise increasingly how important they are as tools of empathy, because mm -hmm. they they've taken us into the minds of, of of people who may have experienced nothing like our own, and 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 that seemed to be in the way that you talk about Benny's, you know, you, you don't. I, I've seen what I hope I'm right saying you know, there was one interview that I looked at we, we talked about the fact that you don't really want to see it as a, as a mental health issue again in stigmatizing mm -hmm. it in pathologizing it that the fact that and that that seems to be quite an important message to to and, and another possibility of thinking about some of these what can seem to be very intrusive ideas mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean you know as somebody who's you know struggled with mental health issues you know for my entire life, um, you know, it, it's, I, I understand and I'm grateful for some of the, you know, interventions that, you know, that the psychopharmaceutical, you know, industry has, has uh, you know, has put forth. I mean, I'm not opposed to that, um, but I, I just think we have a very, very limited um, way of understanding neurodiversity, psychological diversity, you know, and, um, it, it goes back to this idea that, you know, that normal, what we, what we call normal is, you know, is a social construct. We made that up, right? There's no, there's no absolute, uh, right? There's no absolute thing called normal. You know, it's a, you know, there's no bandwidth that, you know, that says from here to here, you know, this is normal and anything outside of that is abnormal, right? Um, we, we make that up all the time, right? And, and our bandwidth right now happens to be very narrow. Um, you know, in other cultures and other times, people who heard voices were, you know, very often celebrated the way that, you know, artists and musicians are celebrated now, um, you know, as healers, as shamans, as saints, you know, and um, it's just that right now we happen to be very uncomfortable with that idea. And, um, and I think there are lots of reasons why, but, um, 
you know, my, um, and it goes back to what you're talking about, about empathy, you know, why, why can't we be more generous with our notions of what is normal? Why can't normal be a more inclusive, you know, category? And why can't we expand it to include more people? In fact, all of us, really. Um, so that, that is something else, of course, that the book is, is, you know, sort of proposing or, or I, I don't want to say proposing, but is um, investigating in a way. Who, uh, who've been the uh, most, well, you actually, you don't, I, I'm not going to keep this, but can you name some of the books that have been most influential to you in terms of your, of your way of thinking? If I told you the most, it's unfair because I know there would just be a sea of books and you yeah, have yeah, to choose yeah. one. So any of them. Well, recently, I'll just have to, you know, go with what's recent. Um, the books recently when I was writing, I mean, it's been eight years, so it, maybe it's not so recent. Um, but um, when I'm when I'm writing, I usually am reading Shakespeare, right? Um, and I read Shakespeare just because, of course, the language is just, you know, incredibly beautiful and inspiring, but also because of the, um, well, the, the um, you know, the, the, pacing is is always useful to remember you know good to kind of move things along the combination um you know the the juxtaposition of comedy and tragedy is always um i mean you can always learn more about that about how to use comedy to heighten tragedy how to use tragedy to heighten comedy you know the the relief you know building in these breathing moments into um into a performance or into a text um so that's always useful to me oh and then of course things like you know the the um, you know, the, the acknowledgement of the audience, how to bring an audience in while acknowledging their existence. And that's, you know, again, the kind of metafictional stuff that, um, that I, I like to, I like to think about and I'd like to play with while I'm, while I'm writing. Um, so, you know, any, any Shakespeare's, you know, um, it, it is, I'm usually reading something as I'm, as I'm writing. Um, another, uh, writer would be, um, it, recently and, and particularly in the book of form and emptiness is um is uh the argentinian writer borges um and so there's you know uh, just a lot i mean of course he writes a, about libraries and he writes about writing and he writes about you know fictions within fictions and um and so his his work has always been very inspiring and in you know one of the characters in this book um the young artist who benny falls in love with um is is named um, the Aleph, and of course that's named after um one of of borges's uh short short stories a hilarious story wonderful story um and then uh walter benjamin was also somebody who i was reading a lot of um when i was writing this book um and again that was just you know i was writing this book it was you know um it it had um, it took place in a library. Somebody reminded me of Benjamin's essay, Unpacking My Library. And so I immediately went and read it and realized that Walter Benjamin was almost the sort of the ghost in the shell. You know, he was the ghost in the book. And, and so I started using his quotes as epigraphs, um, really as a way of kind of keeping me on track again. Um, and he ended up you know, sort of, yeah, really becoming not a character in the book, but a presence in the book. Um, and, th and that was wonderful. That was really, and then of course, you know, Benjamin was a collector of objects, right? He, 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 he was a flaneur and he, he was in that way, 
you know, sort of just fascinated by walking, you know, through the streets and, and looking at things for sale, objects, you know. And, um, so it was a, he was an appropriate um, presence, I felt, in the book. And the final one, I have to ask you this. Yeah. One of your first jobs in the old days, Mutant Hunt. Oh God. Do you still find yourself sometimes maybe down the DVD store or something like that and you suddenly go, oh my goodness, because were you production designer on that? I, I was the production, I was the art director on that, yeah. Um, it was a very, very, very low budget film um, and uh, I was hired originally as a storyboard artist and, um, you know, we were having these pre-production meetings and you know, always running out of time. We didn't write, we didn't draw a single board. Um, and a week before the shoot was to start, the producer suddenly was, you know, like slapped his forehead and said, oh my God, we, we, we don't have an art director. And he looked around the table and I was the only one who wasn't doing anything. And he pointed at me and said, you, you be the art director. And, and I said, but I've never been on a film set before. And he said, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We'll tell you what to do. And um, so, you know, that's why I put quotes around art director. Um, I, I did art direct it and I learned a lot. Um, it, it was um, truly one of the worst films you'll ever see. And I hope you've never seen it. Um, it ends up on things like Mystery Science Theater, you know, where- Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Most yeah. of the films that I, the horror films that I, you know, made um, or that I didn't make, but I, you know, worked on, um, many of them ended up there. Um, there was Mutant Hunt, Breeders, Necropolis, um, Robot Holocaust. That was a good one. Um, yeah, no, they were, they were really bad. See, I love that because the reason I ask is I love that. I, I, I always followed the, what John Waters said about that oh. you you should, you know, the highbrow and the lowbrow brow, it's the middle brow is the danger area. And so I often find myself going, you know, well, I've just finished watching this particular Bergman or Bresson, and now I'm going to watch something like Mutant Hunt. And I love that. And I, I, I find I, I'm, I'm a big fan of just onset ingenuity when it's very much on camera. And, and so I'm a huge, I, I love watching films like that. Well, in, I, I'll tell you uh, one thing I learned. I mean, I learned a lot, make, you know, doing this. And um, one of the things I learned was um, that the best, this was in Breeders, right? Which was about aliens who came to earth and um, bred with um, young New York virgins. Um, and uh, gosh, I just hate even to say this, but anyway, the, one of the jobs that we had to do was to build the breeding pit Right. And of course, the breeding pit had to be filled with alien slime. And what I learned is that the best alien slime is actually made from bookbinders glue. Um, it's got a it's got a viscosity that is very alien, you know. Um, and so we, we mixed up gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of bookbinding glue. Um, so that's just in case you ever need any alien slime. Now, you know. <laughs> Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. That's it. And so we've managed to, I think, go from the the the, the nature of self and uh, reality to uh, Tim Kincaid's breeders, which I don't think there was another breeders that was an alien invasion one where I think the Isle of Man doubled up for New York. And if anyone listening to it, well, some people listening will know the Isle of Man is really one of the least places like New York it's like just you know it's not the Isle of Man is not like the Island of Manhattan it's very <laughs> I, I, that, that that is I love those kind of things where you someone goes how can we make this look like New York and they just go just have someone roller skating 
and then that's it. That's it. That's it. Right. Oh, look, it's New York. There's someone roller skating. Oh, brilliant. Roller skating. And then the other thing we always had to do was like, you know, scatter litter everywhere, you know, yeah. <laughs> garbage everywhere. Right. Oh, it's New York. <laughs> Actually, that's oh. funny because in Toronto, um, a lot of films um, that are supposed to be set in New York are shot in Toronto. And the first thing that they have to do is, is scatter garbage because Toronto's clean, right? So that's the first thing that set decorators have to do is, is collect a lot of New York garbage and, and dump it on the streets of Toronto. Oh man, the size of rats that used to be, and they're probably in there again in Manhattan. I remember turning down a street in Lower East Side and just thinking, I better not tell my wife what I've just seen, but that's bigger than a cat. I know. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, and uh, um, this is a, a book of form and emptiness is out now. Uh, and as I said, it was available in every single bookshop that I went to when I was on, on, on book tour. Um, thank you very much to uh, our producer, Trent Burton. If you can support us uh, via Patreon, then please do just patreon.com slash bookshamble, something like that. Um, but no, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and thank you everyone for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Ruth's book is out through Canongate now. Head to Hive or your local independent bookshop or a bookselling site of your choosing to grab yourself a copy. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe. If you're not already a supporter, rate, like, review, five stars, Apple Podcasts, Acast, all the other places that you can review and subscribe to podcasts. Back next week with another new episode. On next week's episode, I believe our guest will be Julia Cook, whose recent book about air hostesses on the Pan Am airline has been shooting up various charts all over the world. So we're talking to her next week. Until then, take care, stay safe and bye for now. Josie Robbins Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.